The Reminiscing in Time podcast is brought to you by the Indiana University Jacobs School of Music Centennial Committee and Office of Communications. Join the celebration online at music.indiana.edu. I'm John Christopher Porter, and this is Reminiscing in Time from the IU Jacobs School of Music. Although IU Opera Theater began in 1948 under the supervision of Dean Wilfred Bain, the organization didn't find its forever home until 1972, just a few years after the tragic burning of the School of Music's East Hall. Now, 50 years later, the Musical Arts Center remains the Jacobs School's preeminent performance venue, boasting state-of-the-art projection technology, three enormous scenery wagons, and a stage surpassed in size only by the Metropolitan Opera. In this episode of RIT, If These Curtains Could Talk, we hear from several folks who have played integral roles in the success of IU Opera over the years. To begin, Here's a recent conversation JCDR Executive Director of External Affairs Melissa Dixon had with scenic designer and former professor of music and chair of opera studies C. David Higgins and Ted Jones Executive Director of Production Tim Stebbins. Let's get started. I was working in St. Louis as a scenic artist at the Muni Opera and got a call from Wilfred Bain. (laughs) wanting to know if I would come and be the scenic artist at the Musical Arts Center, which was just opening that summer. See David Higgins. And I, of course I said yes. So I've been here in the School of Music since 1971 when the Musical Arts Center opened until I retired 10 years ago in 2011. Initially I was master scenic artist. Eventually I became a faculty member or five years before I retired, I became the chairman of the Opera Studies Department, which I never really understood what all that meant, but uh, it was a, com- uh, a combination of voice faculty, directing faculty, scenic design faculty, technical personnel, all of that. Everything that had to do with the opera. Um, and I held that position until I retired in 2011. What a significant departure from from uh, from acting, from acting to stage design and then running departments around opera. That's that's really yeah. impressive. Yeah. <laughs> well, I came to Indiana University in 1987. Tim Stebbins. And I originally came to be in the MFA program in printmaking. I was hoping to study with uh, Rudy Pozzati. He had retired by the time I got here, and there weren't enough. Uh, assistantship positions in the uh, printmaking department and somebody said go over to the Musical Arts Center. They're always looking for artists over there. So I came over and I sat outside of David's office on the fourth floor for a week. Every day I would come over and I would sit there waiting for David Higgins to show up. And I remember going home and um, my wife Michelle saying, well how did today go? I'd say, Still no sign of him. So finally Al White walking past me all week long, back and forth, finally decided to ask me, what are you doing here? I said, well, I'm looking for David Higgins. He said, well, he's probably on the paint floor. I said, well, where's the paint floor? Well, it's down there. So I go down there, and who's the first person I run into down there is Harold Mack. 
who immediately says, what do you want? I said, well, is David Higgins here? And he said, well, go ask Lori. And I went and asked Lori, who was David's assistant at the time. And one thing led to another. She put me on the crew and I started working uh, on the paint crew, scrubbing buckets, doing whatever David asked me to do, um, and started learning. And it was such an amazing thing because what I was doing in printmaking were these huge prints on canvas. And of course, I came to the Musical Arts Center. Here are these huge backdrops on the floor and this art that was so incredibly large and everything. I just fell in love with it. Ended up leaving that program, uh, joined the uh, master's program in design, studied under David uh, Higgins and Robert O'Hearn. Worked for David every year uh, as my mentor, uh, who always said, you don't really teach scenic painting, you do it. And so just do it, just do it and do it and do it and keep doing it. And that's what we did back in those days. We'd come in at eight, we might have a class at nine, We'd go upstairs, have class, we'd go back to the paint shop, back to the stage, wherever. The, the, the whole operation was like a learning laboratory. If you weren't in class, you were practicing what you were learning in class. So um, just did that and fell in love with it. Had the best job ever, I still do. Painted scenery for 20 years under David. Tried to keep up with his skills. You know, the next generation is never as good as the the older generation, but uh, learned a lot, worked hard, he taught me an awful lot, not just about scenic design and scenic painting, but about art in general. Uh, the, the tools you learn in painting scenery translate across all the art fields because it all involves perspective, it involves color and palette and different things like that. So it was a total immersive learning experience. And I was honored to paint all that scenery under David's uh, tutelage and for Robert O'Hearn as well. Until about 10, 11 years ago, uh, moving into this position, the Ted Jones Executive Director of Production position. So um, it's, it's been a great process. It's been a great role that I've been able to take with the, the School of Music and the theater and um, grateful for every second of it. It's a great story, Tim. I like how tenacious you were. Thanks, David, for not being bothered by it, but encouraged. <laughs> it shows you how often I went to my office. <laughs> Can you, in your own words, define the Mac and the opera, ballet, performances in general that are offered here? What would you tell a layman about what happens in these four walls and why they should experience it? I've talked about this a lot over the years. Because I've had, I've had the good fortune to travel as a designer uh, around the world, and often people ask about the Musical Arts Center. Interestingly enough, most of the places I've been in the world, people have heard of the Musical Arts Center and the IU School of Music before I ever got there. But people have always been curious about how it all happened and what it all means and you know its impact. And uh, it really is a miracle that that all of this came to be and it was because of Herman Wells, um, who was president in 1947, when Wilfred Bain, who was not the first dean of the School of Music, but he was the, the dean who caused the Musical Arts Center to be built and who created the opera program. First opera was given in 49, two years after he came. And um, by 1971, that is 22 years later, um, the Musical Arts Center standing on the site where we used to hold the operas. 
which was a Quonset hut affair built during the war. So I tell people that it is a professionally conceived living theater, living working theater, peopled by students. Relatively few professional people were involved in the Musical Arts Center. All the heads of departments, of course, were faculty and or staff. But the entire labor force, everything that made the Musical Arts Center work for all these decades was student labor, student help. At one point, we had an academic program training technicians, training designers, and in addition to that, students from the fine arts department, students from theater, general population students from across the campus would come and work on the stage crew, the costume crew, the electric crew. All of the, the singers, um, not, not uh, initially, but when the, the opera was first getting started, faculty sang roles. And I, I remember, I can't tell you the year, but I remember the conversation in the, in the uh, faculty council meeting where the decision was made to use only student singers in all the roles as opposed to having faculty sing major roles. And uh, that was an interesting conversation to hold. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Yeah. But um, the quality of the productions that we have done for all of these decades is as good as or better than many regional opera companies in the United States and in other countries, because I've been there mm -hmm. and I know. Uh, we have been able, for whatever reason, <laughs> And some of it is just you know, sheer will, I think, on the part of everybody involved. But we have mounted productions that are jaw-dropping. And I don't say that because I was a designer for some of them. But it's true. Uh, all of the people that made it happen had a, such a commitment to quality and excellence in both performance and in the physical aspect of scenery and costumes that we have we have done things that other institutions couldn't even dream of doing for a long long time Tim well you know as David says you know when I first came here I could not have imagined the amazing uh, art that was being created in this building and I quickly learned that there were no shortcuts to that and it was all hands on deck all the time the faculty, you know, the department heads, the students, everybody pulling together in the same direction. No detail was ever missed. I remember one of the first shows I worked on was Orfeo, and David gave me the great honor of painting the throne. And I remember it was supposed to be like crystals. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is like an incredible thing. And I got to do this. I worked on it for so long and everything. And then we get to dress week. And I remember the backdrop goes up. That thing comes out. The, the singer gets off of it. It goes back and it comes a drop. And it was on the stage for 30 seconds. Literally, yeah, 30 seconds, if that. And I thought, and then I realized that, you know, the importance of everything that goes into a production like that. The Musical Arts Center is just, what I tell everybody, it's a huge learning laboratory uh, for all the students. It's not just the singers, and I always remind them, it's the orchestra who have a, a, a large investment in the music as well, but then all the crews backstage, the uh, audio, costumes, uh, set, uh, electrics, all of them pulling together, supporting their colleagues in an atmosphere that gives them a real professional experience. I mean, uh, absolutely. the productions that we have in this building that have been traditionally designed uh, are second to none. 
other than the Met. But you always have to throw the Met out when you're talking about opera, and then you can talk about everybody else, right? <laughs> That's a creature unto itself. So, um, and the great pride in that, and the, the students that come here, it's, it's funny because just this week, two days ago, I had somebody who had been on crew here for 10 years come down from Chicago just to visit. And she's up there painting scenery, but her, her degree work was in special ed when she was here. So many kids that come through this building that never intend to get into theater, to do the things that we do, and they stay for four years because they love it and um, they go off because what town, what city doesn't have some sort of regional theater or some sort of group that they can latch on to? Right. And so often we hear from students that had no intentions of being in theater and yet that's what they're out there doing. That, that's one of the greatest satisfactions I have in, in working with the students here. There's an anecdote I can tell about Wilford Payne. He was having lunch with a friend of mine once after he'd retired, I think. And my friend asks him, you know, how did you do it? How did you make it all happen? And he said two things. Uh, to get world-class faculty here, world-class instrumentalists, world-class singers, so forth, was the easiest thing in the world because there were no retirement programs. Seasons in opera companies and orchestras around the world were short. And you took care of yourself when you were out of season. So they, they were thrilled to come here to Indiana University and be part of the School of Music because they had the security of a job, they could still go out and gig, and they had one of the most advanced retirement programs in the country, thanks to Wilford Bain and uh, Herman Wells. And the other aspect is, he said, um, if you want to grow a world-class school of music, you should perform opera. Because opera requires every single aspect of performance. Instrumentalists, vocalists, the ballet, all the visual arts, et cetera, et cetera. And that's what, he's, that's what Wilfred Bain set out to do. And in 1949, when they started the opera, it was to bring all of these forces together and create a product which uh, would drive the engine of the School of Music. There was no, it, it was not a mistake that there, there were, and we still have, I think, four, opera, uh, four orchestras four standing orchestras in the School of Music plus the freshman junior orchestra. Yeah, there's five. Five. Mm -hmm. um, because <laughs> it takes that many orchestras to do the opera, the ballet, early music, all these ensemble groups. Mm -hmm. and, and all of their education is, is being driven by their involvement in the performances that go on at the Music Arts Center. So speaking of productions, right, and the amount that we do as a school, the number that you've been a part of, each of you, and then also two together, any, any uh, fun tales you can share with our audience, any, any hair-raising or hair-rowing moments um, behind the scenes that would be fun to share with our listeners today? My absolute favorite story to tell people. I, I try to tell all the donors that come here uh, or people that visit that I give tours to because I never want to forget uh, the students and we're here because of the students, for the students, in support of the students. 
um, and we get by largely on the back of the students, as David mentioned earlier. You know, there's one professional department head in each area, and other than that, it's all students in this building. And we were getting ready for a performance of La Boheme, and it was David's La Boheme, which was just a bear of a production <laughs> to manage, but but rapidly became our sort of iconic production in this building. Three turntables, everything rotating, you know, um, every act. It was just an amazing, amazing production. And it was Friday, and we had given the crew the, the day off, and about two o'clock, the technical director comes to me and says, the pivot on that act one turntable is broken. So what does that mean? Well, it's not gonna turn. Well, all of the staging depended on it turning. So this is at two o'clock, there's nobody in the building, the, the TD is here and a couple other people. So the only solution is to, to strike the set off of the turntable, get in there and fix it. This is at two o'clock and we have an eight o'clock performance. So I asked the TD uh, at the time, I said, if you can get in there, can you fix it? And she says, yeah, I'm absolutely sure we can. So, all right. So, you know, a set like that takes a week to load in. We've got like four hours. So uh, everybody gets on the phone, starts calling the crew. All those kids came in, every one of them, on their day off on that Friday, came in and tore that set down. Got that off the turntable. She got in there, she got it fixed. It was 6.30 by the time we got it loaded back on. This is a kind of uh, story that resonates uh, with me most of all because it was about those kids. It was about the dedication those students felt for the theater, for the Mac, for the opera, uh, for everything to come in, do that work, get it done, and then we were able to go into the performance that night. Now, the funny thing is, uh, the dean, he asked me in the way only he could, that's great, what was your plan B? And then I realized I didn't have a plan B, and that's the nature of live theater. You, you have to make the call, you have to go with your gut, you have to just trust that it's gonna work out and will it to work out. But if it hadn't been for those kids, for, for those students, that crew, it never would have happened and it would have been a disaster. So uh, I never forget that, that without them, we can't do what we do here and we do it for them, but also with them. Yeah, pillar to post, right? Yeah, Start absolutely. to finish, every yeah. aspect. Yeah. You make that so clear when you're so gracious to take our office and our donors on tours. You make that so clear about how our students are so involved in our process and, you know, how lucky they are. My best memories at this school, speaking as an mm -hmm. alum, exist inside these four walls. Mm -hmm. Like every great memory that I have is right inside here. There's a lot said, of course, about the construct of this building and how you know it in and of itself is a work of art and how we always are sort of paying homage to that. There's certain things that we can't change or so say at the rumor mill. But there have been some developments inside the theater. I'm thinking about the wagons in particular or you know, the carpet was improved, the UV was improved, like the, these, these types. Are there things that you're most proud of in terms of the evolution of this building? Well, it's true that the building is sort of considered a work of art. I remember the architect uh, was very particular about the choice of color, and anybody that walks through the halls, the cement-coated walls, <laughs> sees all the different colors of light fixtures. I, I always thought years ago, 
who figured all that out? Who sat down with all those paint chips <laughs> and figured out which light is going to get which color? Uh, but um, I've, I've always appreciated um, the care that went into designing the building from the technical standpoint. I mean, we had stage wet, and literally, the facilities that we had here at the Musical Arts Center did rival the Metropolitan Opera. You know, the new Lincoln Center Theater was built several years, but I think it was in the early 60s, 60s. or something. Yep. And uh, that was sort of the benchmark for, for us. I remember Ted Jones, who was involved in coordinating with the contractors and the architect and the School of Music, went to Europe and traveled all over the place, you know, to, to figure out what would be the best arrangement for, say, the auditorium. We have no center aisle, like most traditional American theaters. It is a continuous row of seating all the way across, like in European houses, and the boxes on the different mezzanine levels. So all of that was very carefully worked out, and... Um, I've just always been very proud that we had all of those things to work with. When the Musical Arts Center opened in 1971, there were no regional theaters, opera company theaters, uh, within 250 miles of Bloomington. The St. Louis Opera started after us, the Louisville Opera, the Cincinnati Opera, Chicago, of course, was in existence, but you go around, Dayton, Cincinnati, uh, um, Columbus, all of them post-date the Musical Arts Center. So when the Musical Arts Center opened in 1971, there's this huge draw, regional draw, because we were centrally located in Indiana. We drew people from all of the contiguous states, and it was a big deal. I mean, uh, it was one of the things that made us as successful as we were. All of that has changed now. There are other regional opera companies, or at least were until COVID. I don't know what's happening now. <laughs> but... Um, uh, that was a that was an important factor, yeah. and one of the reasons why we were so successful is because we had this facility that, I mean, there there were no counterparts anywhere. You know, in terms of the the building itself, you 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 know, not too much can change in terms of the physical structure, the lobby, the the carpet is what it is, the colors are what they are, um, the, the stage has remained. Consistent. I mean, the stage wagons, for instance, now they did become um, automated several years ago, which is nice. Um, and, you know, some other upgrades that we need with, you know, moving lights, that sorts of things. But, you know, when it comes to the physical building itself, the, the, the times that I'm most proud of this building and I realize how special it is, is when somebody utilizes it to its full potential. And I hate to go back to La Boheme, but I think that was the one production <laughs> that was designed in this building that really pushed the limits and utilized every aspect that makes this building special. And whenever we bring in a designer or a director, I kind of urge them and nudge them a little bit to make use. And, you know, I tell them this is an incredible space with incredible toys and it's an incredible playground, so make use of it. You know, because all of those things that make it unique and, and made it state-of-the-art in its day and still today to, to a large degree, um, those are the things that, you know, we want to utilize for our patrons and for our students because a lot of our student artists work in a building uh, 
a building like this. They won't work in a theater that has everything that the Musical Arts Center has. So An embarrassment of riches, indeed. Somebody told me it was Dick Latham. My high school class was taken on a tour of the Musical Arts Center. And so and he was the one that gave the tour, and he said, the Musical Arts Center was designed so that if you only visited it once, that you would never forget what it looked like. And I think that's kind of true. Well, I don't know. I don't. I don't know that that's why. Right. <laughs> I would agree with that statement. Yeah. <laughs> you had mentioned earlier, everybody likes the bloopers, right? I think I'm one of those too, and I bet you our listeners are too. What's a blooper from behind the scenes that you can share that's G-rated, please? Well, actually going back before the Musical Arts Center opened, uh-huh. after the East Hall building burned down, <laughs> and they started building the Musical Arts Center. The opera actually was out at what then was called University School, out on the bypass, and it was just a high school stage. I mean, proscenium opening was like, I don't know, 38 feet, and the stage depth was like 22, and the vertical opening was 16, I think. I mean, it was like a postage stamp compared to what we have. But we were doing the operas out there, and Ross Allen, was of course one of our directors for many many years and there are so many stories about Ross Allen but that would fill up a whole episode of your your program but uh, Ross uh, was notorious for being eccentric and we were doing I think it was God Il Trovatore or something and there was the entrance of the gypsy caravan he had blocked this cart to go across upstage in back of the action and all these gypsies were you know traveling and so Ross was in a particularly giddy mood <laughs> and they said well Ross why don't you why don't you get in the wagon when you can go across the stage so he, he put like this shawl over him and a thing a schmata <laughs> wrapped around his head you know and he's in there giggling away and if you knew Ross Allen it was even more funny because he was kind of rotund so he was parked in this this wagon with his feet up in the air and this thing wrapped around him and they pushed him across the stage. And of course the audience never knew it, but everybody backstage got a big kick out of it. I can tell you a story on myself. Uh, it was early in my musical arts center career and I was doing Kiss Me Kate. And I was, uh, Tim can tell you, I've always been into uh, scenery that is kinetic, scenery that moves and interacts with the action. And uh, I had painted a show curtain, which is a curtain that covers the proscenium opening. And they used to call them oleo curtains in vaudeville because they'd sell advertising on them. But this was like, you know, it said, kiss me Kate, and then love flowers and things all over it. Well, that curtain was supposed to go up at the start of the overture, or at the, no, after the overture, at the start of the action. And I think it's, uh, we open in Venice, it's like the very first thing. <laughs> so here's the whole chorus on stage in their, you know, Renaissance costumes and dancers out there dancing and everything. And I had these two four by four, wag- or four by eight wagons on either side of the stage. As you know, we have alcove space. So there's, the stage extends past the proscenium opening on right and left, sort of around the, the orchestra pit. And I had designed these, these wagons to be parked upstage and back in that curtain. And then when the curtain went up, 
they were supposed to not only go downstage, but they were to telescope like that. I'm, I'm moving my hands. I see you. Um, and on these wagons were 16-foot topiary trees made out of chicken wire and, and cardboard. <laughs> Three-dimensional. And uh, we rehearsed this, of course, for a week, and it all went fine. Opening night comes. I'm out in the middle of the house, sitting right there with my wife. House is full of people. The overture ends. That curtain starts up, and the stage crew for some unknown reason, push, they got the, uh, their, their cue early and started to push those wagons downstage before the, oh, no. the, the drop went up. Oh no. And the pipe in the bottom of the drop caught the topiary trees oh, that were coming downstage, picked them up oh, about six feet in the air and dropped them. <laughs> And they landed on stage and broke and fell like two toppled <laughs> trees across the stage as the dancers were coming. <laughs> and the crowd went wild. They were like, that was beautiful. <laughs> so obviously we had to stop, <laughs> clean up the mess, uh -huh. bring the curtain back, and do the whole thing over without the topiary trees. But... That was a great lesson for me. First of all, never sit in the middle of the house. <laughs> oh, sure. <laughs> and secondly, uh, always make sure your scenery uh, is what? Stupid proof, if you can. <laughs> uh, because we had not affixed the topiaries to the platform, as we should have. So your position is named, Tim, and I'm not doing this just because. But it's named for a reason, and you did reference Ted earlier. Mm -hmm. For our listeners, he was an integral part of the facility that we sit in. Can you can you share a little bit about Ted, and and also too like the reason why we named the position for him? Well, David knows Ted much more intimately than I do. I had Ted Jones as an instructor when I was a student, mm -hmm. and that was thirty-two years ago, in a lighting class, and it was Al White, and it was Ted Jones. And, um, but Ted has always been a, a fixture when it comes to the Musical Arts Center, especially uh, historically, because he was on the front end of it. As David said, you know, um, traveled Europe and came back with all these great ideas and helped guide that, that process. Through the years, he's always uh, maintained an interest in what we've done, even after retirement. He's here at performances and um, is a great lover of the performing arts. There's the Ted Jones Theater? Downtown. Downtown. Uh, Downtown Bloomington. Bloomington Playwright Project. Yeah. Right. Um, and so I was really honored that, that Ted would endow my position. I wasn't that great a student. I probably had nothing to do with that. He felt but, sorry uh, for you. Well, I did. Uh, but I do feel like a fixture, like he was a fixture. I'm going into my 34th year yeah. here. So well, I, I can can't match you. David, but uh, <laughs> I'm getting close. I can give you the historical context. Uh, when the opera started, uh, or shortly after the opera started, early 50s, you know, it was all sort of piecemeal. It was like, we're going to put on an opera. Who wants to play, you know? And they were getting housewives to uh, sew costumes, and Mary Bain stood down at the IGA and asked people if they wanted to be in the chorus, things like that. But there Humble were, beginnings, to there say the were, least. Uh, 
numerous technical directors, if you want to call them that, but the first person that actually held the job, I think, was uh, Dick Snyder. And um, this is when I was still a student, uh, and it was before the Musical Arts Center actually opened, but Dick Snyder got his doctorate and left or something. And then Ted Jones became the technical director for a number of years. Then Wilfred Bain appointed him as the liaison between the School of Music and the architect and the contractors. So he left that position. Um, and uh, I think that's when Hal Mack, if I remember correctly, Hal Mack took over that responsibility. Mm -hmm. And this was just as the Musical Arts Center was getting underway. And then after, and he, he played an, a, a very important part in making all this happen. I mean, it was like making sure that the subcontractor that was doing the turntables used the right materials and did it correctly and all of that. So he was, he was quality checking. He was, what do they call him, uh, construction coordinator. When the Musical Arts Center opened and all the dust settled, you know, what do we do with Ted Jones? <laughs> And he became, um, he became the director of what was then called the Division of General and Technical Studies, DIGITS, which was a program to teach, it was a two-year degree program uh, to teach people technical theater, basically, and it involved costume construction and a number of things. He held that position for a number of years until his retirement, I think. So that's his involvement with school music, and, and that's why the building... Um, and he have such a long history together. You do. I know Ted Ted said he was so happy to name your position, Tim. He really wanted to name the building. Is <laughs> that uh, <so>, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, there's a lot of talk about this being the Bain yes. Memorial Theater, and I don't know who put the kibosh on that, but somebody did. I don't know about that either. Well, again, I thank you both so much for sitting with us this afternoon and giving up all the time that you did. I know our listeners appreciate it, too. Again, I'm Melissa Dixon, joined today by David Higgins, Tim Stebbins. Thanks for joining us on Reminiscing in Time. My name is Jeremiah Sanders, and I am a third-year doctoral student studying voice. I'm a baritone and I am from Marion, Indiana. Um, I started singing with my great-grandmother in uh, our church choir, Calvary Beth Missionary Baptist Church in Marion, Indiana. And um, I was probably maybe three or four at the time, and she would always drag me to rehearsals. And every time I went, I had so much fun um, running around the choir loft and just being a part of the music. I arrived at the Jacob School of Music in 2017. Um, I had met my teacher, Jane Dutton, um, at a summer program the year prior. I sang a couple of notes for her uh, in a practice room. I also had an opportunity to work with her in a master class. And what she was able to do in such a short amount of time uh, with me as a singer um, was just incredible. And uh, she said, you know, you should come to IU. 
And I said, oh no, I don't think so. <laughs> she said, oh no, you know, IU's a great place and I'd be happy to make any connections for you at IU. Whatever you need, I think you should come here though. I'm happy to help. Now I can say that's really special. It was a big scary place at first, but I think that I've successfully um, navigated IU and, and have really given, you know, my all and, and made my mark in a distinct way. And I feel that IU has definitely helped me exponentially grow into the artist that I am today and that I want to be. The way that we run things here is different than school as far as IU Opera is concerned. Um, I, I think the rehearsal schedule and the coachings and just the preparation to to be able to show up to Maestro Week, the first week where we just have music rehearsals, um, was a huge adjustment for me early on. Just that type of pacing and being able to get into a flow for each of the individual responsibilities that I have as a student and as a performer um, and now as an associate instructor. All of those demands need different types of attention and focus and, and care and thoughtful strategic planning. And so I, I feel that just the very nature of the IU opera ecology is translatable to my life outside of IU. At least I think so. We'll see. <laughs> ask me ask me in a couple of years. I'm I've been very fortunate to have such wonderful mentors who support me as I am and you know the conversations that we have are are always from a place of care and concern and compassion and understanding the support that they they have offered and and helping me really believe in my myself and my craft and the work that I'm trying to put out there has just been so 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 I don't even have words for it really the acumen of of going out and making connections and asking people to be mentors and then showing up and delivering on the very goals that you and your mentor set is probably the most important thing that I'll take away from Indiana University. The roles that I have gotten to perform on the Mac stage um, are Hansel and Gretel with Maestro Fagan and Michael Schell um, leading that production. I was the father Bernstein's Mass as the preacher and a street singer with Maestro um, Kitsopoulos and Candace Evans. Um, following that, I was in La Traviata with uh, great friends and Maestro Fagan and uh, Francesca Zambello. And I did La Boheme uh, in the pandemic. And that presented <laughs> a lot of challenges. Following La Boheme, um, I got to be in, I guess, what I just did, Falstaff. And then upcoming, I think, will be my final opera 
here at IU will be William Grant Stills Highway 1 USA, and I'm very much looking forward to it. My favorite uh, memory of Jacob's would have to be all of the incredible friends that I've made here. I don't know that I would have been able to get through this experience without them. A handful of them are certainly already in the running to be lifelong friends. Knowing um, a, a lot of the connections that I have made won't just stay here at IU just really moves me. So currently I am learning the show Three Decembers by Jake Heggie, which I will perform with a South Bend Lyric Opera. Um, and then I come back in the spring and I do Highway 1 USA, the William Grant Still double bill. I'll finish coursework up in the spring of 2022. And... I am hoping, based on the timeline that I have set, that I'll be able to finish my degree rather soon, the, the additional requirements outside of coursework. I hope to be involved in some combination of performing um, full-time and, and teaching part-time, but there's a big question mark at this point in a young artist's life. <laughs> we don't know. We kind of just... Uh, persevere and and you know keep throwing ourselves at every opportunity that we can have and I'm no exception to that to hear all of Jeremiah's inspirational story tune in next week for a special supplemental episode of reminiscing in time Next, I'm joined by stage director and former professor of music and chair of opera studies, Vince Leota, who not only taught at Jacobs for 14 years, but studied at the school during a pivotal point in its history. Vince, how did you come to theater, especially opera? Was the path as circuitous as one might think coming from an arts history background? Oh, well... Um, it goes back earlier than that. I actually, my first jobs as, in the arts, as it were, were actually in theater. Um, I did, you know, I did a lot of stuff in, in, in grammar school and high school, but then I also worked as a theater counselor at a summer camp. Mm. Um, and originally, I was actually going to study theater. Um, mm -hmm. Life took a couple of turns that didn't allow that to happen. So I ended up studying art history. Um, which actually was good background. I mean, for an, ending up as a director, um, it's good to know a lot of stuff. And art mm -hmm. history helps you know a lot of art stuff, as it were. <laughs> um, but from there, I ended up, after a brief bout of teaching in high school, in the Air Force, which mm. took me to Alaska, which got me involved with a thing called the Alaska Festival of Music. At which point, Fiora Contino of blessed memory, and at that time of the IU Choral Department, um, came to conduct uh, a Verdi Requiem and do an opera workshop. And so they were doing opera scenes, and I had not really done any opera before that. I had done musicals, and I had done theater, and I had done some directing. 
So uh, the, the woman who was in charge of the festival, the artistic director asked, asked me if I would stage a couple of scenes. And I thought, well, why not? So the, the works were, the, the, the project was Mozart. And let's start with something really easy, the marriage of Figaro. Um, my first advice to anyone who wants to be a stage director in opera is do not start with Mozart and the marriage of Figaro. <laughs> but um, there I was. And back in the day, and this is in the 70s, the way I got to IU is she picked up the phone and called Wilfred Bain and said, listen, I have somebody here who should be there studying. And the answer from Dean Bain was, okay, tell him to come. That was my entire admissions process. Oh my goodness. Um, so much so that by the time I got there and began my first semester, two weeks later, I actually had to go through all the admissions forms and, and uh, transcripts and all of that. Meanwhile, um, I happened to luck into an assistantship in the opera department on the stage crew. So that pretty much covered the expense. And I spent two years there um, at IU studying opera with Hans Busch and with Ross Allen and, and Fiora and others. Um, and then when I was ready to graduate, Carol Fox at Lyric Opera had indulged in one of her all too frequent whims and fired the entire production staff. So the one remaining person on the production staff needed to find some assistance. And it happened that the woman who was the assistant lighting designer, the resident lighting designer at the Lyric said, well, why don't you go down to IU and interview some of the graduates there? You know, they're all smart. They all know opera. They all like opera. And so Bill Mason, who ultimately became the general director of, of Lyric, came down and interviewed us and he hired two of us. And so in 1975, I started working at Lyric. Going back just a little bit, Vince, um, you came in at virtually the ground floor of the uh, of the Musical Arts Center when you arrived in Bloomington. Who mm -hmm. else was around at that time? There was David Higgins, who mm -hmm. was a scenic artist at that time. Uh, there was Al White and Hal Mack and uh, George Calder mm -hmm. and uh, Ted Jones and us, I think. That was, I think that's everybody who was there, at least the people who were supervising. While you were a graduate student, if you had to pick one, maybe two of your faculty mentors, who influenced you the most while you were here? Oh, well, hands down, Ross Allen. This is going to sound really mm, hubristic. First of all, Ross knew more about opera than any man I've ever known. And he taught it in a way that you learned about things that were not only sort of direct opera history, but peripheral to opera. And then working with him as a stage director, it was a strange experience because he was very demanding. And a lot of the things, frankly, that Ross did as uh, thinking in terms of a director I thought, well, you know, that's not really the way I would want to do it. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of education in that. And so I worked with Ross almost exclusively on productions. I think I worked on one production with Hans Busch. All the other ones I worked with Ross, who uh, had a reputation for being much more difficult to work with. But then again, even then, I had a reputation for being difficult to work with. So we sort of balanced each other right. out. The other great influence, I think, was Fiora Contino. She had such a sense of the history of the world of opera. I mean, you know, 
her father played with Toscanini. She she wow. grew up with Toscanini in the household. She knew a lot more about Italian opera than anybody I think I know. And she was very, very good at encouraging uh, me. Mm-hmm. I mean, we remained friends for many, many years. And so I, and of course she got me into IU. So what could be a greater influence? Right. Going back to the Lyric, how long were you at the Lyric? I was there full time from 1975 to 1982. Mm-hmm. And then I continued to work there right up until 2008. You were there as um, at first an uh, assistant first I director? Was assist- no, I was an assistant stage manager. And then I kind of uh, worked my way up into being an assistant director, um, partially because I had enough Italian that I could work with a lot of the Italian directors uh-huh. who in that day, you know, it was La Scala West. And so I became kind of the house assistant for the last, I suppose, half of my tenure there full time. What were some of the productions that gave you a real strong foothold in the profession? Well, I suppose the one that that really set me off on that path, I did a production of La Cenerentola in Mm -hmm. 1976 for a little opera company in Philadelphia called the Pennsylvania Opera Theater. Uh-huh. And it was a, a great little production. I mean, we we revived it twice. And in fact, it's been revived about 17 times, uh, not by that company, but by other companies. But I suppose what did that is it was the first professional theater I worked with where I was um, kind of the professional in charge, as opposed to being somebody's assistant or being a stage manager. And so um, it really helped me establish myself and a style of working as a director. So I Mm -hmm. suppose that was it. And of course, the success of the production didn't hurt. When did you get into academia? You you taught before you came back to Indiana University. Yes, my first academic, well, I had some part-time academic jobs when I lived in Alaska, mm-hmm. teaching theater and, and makeup and all sorts of interesting things. Um, my first real full-time academic job as a teacher of opera was in 1983 at the University of Washington. I got hired there to be the head of the opera program, and uh, that's where it started. And then I taught at the University of Oklahoma and the University of Nebraska. And finally, in 1995, yeah, it must have been 95, Al White called me. They had lined up a whole bunch of guest directors. Three of the guest directors dropped out. Uh-huh. And he said, are you available to come? And so I came in 1995 uh, as a guest and then was hired as a full-time faculty member at the end of that academic year. And so I really started at IU in 1996. Looking at um, professional companies and I guess the size and and the breadth of everything that we do here at the IU Opera and Ballet Theater, how does our theater resemble that of a professional company and how does it differ? Well, that's kind of a loaded question, but I suspect the simple answer is that it is more in the differences than in the similarities. And Mm -hmm. I say that advisedly. But frankly, a professional theater company, a professional opera company, that's all they do all day, every day. Mm -hmm. And at IU, all of the production, rehearsals, planning, whatever, are really ancillary to the main job of 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 the school, which is teaching. Of course. So in that sense, you don't work the same kind of hours. You don't work on the same kind of schedule. And very often you cannot work, in all fairness, with the same kind of rigor. Because how many hours a day can you make students 
who have also a full day of classes work. IU comes very close in that sense. Now, here's the other side of it. Um, I don't know what it is now, but certainly before I left, um, we were doing five hours a day of rehearsal. And uh, if you worked in an Agma house, you, you would be legally allowed to do no more than six. So oh, in wow. that sense, the intensity, I suppose, is very much like a professional company. The other thing is the expectations. Um, when I was a student at IU, one of the things that allowed me to go to Lyric is that we worked backstage. And so there was nothing about large complex opera houses with numbers of crews and personnel doing a whole lot of things that you somehow had to fit into and stay out of the way of that uh, daunted us. And so we were able to fit in there. And I think to a certain extent, that's still true that the, the scope of production at IU gets people, whether they're singers or directors or whatever, however they're going to end up, and orchestra players, conductors, doesn't matter, um, gets them geared up to a sense of the way a professional company works, which is that you have your responsibilities and yet you have to make it possible for everybody else to, to meet their responsibilities. Yeah. It's not just about, this is going to sound really bad, but it's not about hand feeding anyone through the process. Mm -hmm. It's about making it happen and people learning how they have to fit into that process. And that was true. Uh, it was true, far more true, actually, when I was a student there, but it was certainly true up until the time I retired. Taking that one step further, as a director who is also a professor, a professor who's also a director, how do you have to tailor your behavior or delivery, if at all, uh, when dealing with or working with students versus professionals? It, it seems like it's a very fine line, but again, you are working with students and not professionals. I think what you have to tailor is you have to tailor the way you present information. Mm -hmm. If you're working with professionals, whatever that means, these are people who you expect to come and expect that they know what their job is. And that comes from anywhere from knowing what they're singing before they ever hit the stage mm -hmm. to knowing how they fit in and where they take precedence and where they don't take precedence. When you're dealing with students, that's part of the learning process. I mean, part of the way you do a production, at least the way I would do a production at IU, is to take people through what the professional expectation is, but also then try and explain what the professional expectation is. <laughs> What were some of your favorite productions that you directed here um, from the canon? Probably one that some people would take exception to as being canon. Uh, one of my favorite productions was The Rake's Progress. Wow. I thought that was, it was fun to do. We did a really good production of it. Very stripped down in a way. It was a previously built production that was very, very heavy. It was very much in the style of the 80s at IU, which was fairly heavy scenically. Um, and this one was much cut down, I mean, redu not reduced, streamlined. That's a better mm -hmm. word for it. Mm -hmm. And when doing that, it made the piece come so to life that I really was very satisfied by my work and by what we were able to get as a performance. Beyond that, going strictly to the canon, my absolute favorite, and I've done it more than once at IU, was Falstaff, because it is absolutely a wonderful thing to do. I don't know how you can do Falstaff and not have a good time. It is also, sidebar, the only time that I have ever personally appeared on stage at the MAC. We were having a dress rehearsal and Tim Noble was singing Falstaff. 
and he was supposed to do the dress rehearsal that night and he hurt his back. He really was, you know, in excruciating pain. Mm -hmm. So rather than call off the dress rehearsal, I sort of got myself up in a moderate, moderated fat suit and I walked through the part of Falstaff, did all of his blocking, and um, the assistant conductor sang it from the wings while I mouthed the words. It was sort of dubbing me in. Uh -huh. um, it was, uh, shall we say, a unique experience for the audience. Uh, and it's also the only time I've ever actually appeared in an opera on the stage, on the IU stage at least. I think about what a, um, an enjoyable, hysterical show Falstaff is or can be in the right hands. But I also think of other things that you've done, especially Rossini. Um, I love your Italian girl. That was one of the first pieces of yours that I've ever seen at IU Opera Theater. And I've always admired, Vince, your sense of humor and how, how that comes through. Your own personal sense of humor comes through in your direction. Well, you've hit on something there because I have to say, if you asked me to really name the composer who I would always go back to to do a work, it's Rossini. Mm -hmm. I have... I have done, I haven't done a whole lot of Rossini. I've done Italian Girl. I've done Cenerentola. I've done Barber, Turk in Italy. I find something so sympathetic in Rossini that I have a sympathy with him. I think it's because I like humor and yeah. Rossini wasn't afraid to be humorous, whether that was musically humorous or in the mm -hmm. story material he chose. He was very good at comedy. You've done many premieres and commissions with the IU Opera Theater. Name one of your favorites. McTeague. It was the first kind of premiere. It was the second performance, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, but McTeague was absolutely my favorite in that sort of new operas that we're doing. Right. Um, beyond that, I have to say that what ended up being very, very rewarding on many levels, although it was probably also the most challenging thing I ever had to do in my career at IU, was Vincent. Incredibly challenging. It really took every ounce of effort mm -hmm. because it was a very difficult production. And uh, when all is said and done, I think maybe my proudest moment or the moment that I liked most in all the operas I've done at IU is in Vincent. There's one scene mm -hmm. where they are in the uh, mines. And at the end of the mining scene, everyone in the mines turns around and turns into a procession. And the scene morphs from being the people in the mines who are leaving the mines to being a funeral procession going into a church. And that to me, is, it, it's one of my favorite moments that I've created. Aside from your work at the theater and the productions that you directed, can you think of something special that you remember about your time at the Jacob School? Oh, well, you know what I remember most? I remember sitting down and doing an interview like this with Violette, who was perhaps the most wonderful colleague I have ever met. Not in the sense that all my colleagues weren't wonderful, but she was so unaffected. Mm-hmm. And even, we used to have a joke, you know, she was a member of the Legion of Honor. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, you always address the members of the Legion of Honor in the masculine, uh -huh. but you use their feminine things. So she was Madame Le Chevalier. <laughs> and every time I saw her after she got the Legion of Honor, that's how I would greet her. And every time I saw her and greeted her, the thousand times I did this, she would giggle. And oh. that to me is, you know, that is, that is so fond of memory. It's hard to listen because if you if you say somebody, you're leaving somebody out. Sure. But I have to say that I appreciated the fact from the first day I got there, 
Connie Kukuro was perhaps my greatest supporter through, you know, thick, thin, and even when she wasn't really talking to me. For whatever reason, she was always my greatest supporter, and I appreciated that a lot. And that's our show. Thanks to our guests, C. David Higgins, Tim Stebbins, Jeremiah Sanders, Vince Liotta, and to my co-host, Melissa Dixon. For Reminiscing in Time, I'm John Christopher Porter. Take care of yourselves and each other, wear your masks, and be safe. Our theme music, Danabar, is by Luke Gillespie and performed by the composer and members of the IU Jazz Studies faculty on the album Moving Mists from Patois Records. The Reminiscing in Time podcast is produced by the Indiana University Jacobs School of Music. Find us on Spotify, social media, or music.indiana.edu.